good to see you guys this morning. Uh, you may notice that this is the second Sunday in a row that I've been up here. Uh, we had an elder in the first service who said, uh, you're up again? <laughs> to which I said, you know, it's not too late for you to leave. <laughs> but it is too late for you to leave. After the service, he came and thanked me for uh, not humiliating him by name. And I said, well, they're going to know that it was an elder from the first service. So you guys figure it out. Okay. So today, Mark and Zach have asked me to summarize the series, which I thought was strange. But here goes. The Rangers took game one. With a walk-off in the 11th, the Diamondbacks, amen, the Diamondbacks took game two, nine to one, and I know that was only one win, but oh, Lord, I was so worried. Uh, Rangers took game three with a warring bullpen, and game four with two big innings, the second and third, and in game five, they took it. They clinched it on the strength of Uvalde's arm and the bats of Seeger and Simeon. Now, shall we pray? I want you to know that pastors all throughout North Texas have been waiting over 50 years to do what I just did. <laughs> In other news, the other series, we have had the privilege, I want you to know, the privilege of thinking about the church for a couple weeks now, which to me is really cool. If you think about it, we come to church, many of us have grown up in the church, many of us um, raise our kids in the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but we don't always think about what the church is. So to me, it's been really cool to think about what the church is. And here are some of the things that we've said. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the family of God. The church is the mother of believers. The church is the army of God. And last week, the church is the holy priesthood. And last but not least, the church is the bride of Christ. Lots of things the church is. Now, I want you to hold on to as many of those as you can. And then I want you to look at this table. Because it's here at the table that all these images, all these metaphors, all these realities fit together, and they kind of fit together like this. At this table, we are first and foremost the body of Christ. Now, that's what we're going to focus on today. Together, here at this table, we are taking body and blood from one loaf and from one cup, which is why we have a presentation piece here for me to hold up in a minute real high and break. It's one piece. And we have one cup that I'm going to hold up. It's one cup, which is made of a lot of individual pieces of grain. The bread is many hundreds and thousands of pieces of grain. And the cup is full of wine that was made from hundreds and thousands of grapes, right? So in this table here at this moment, here in a little bit, you're going to see that we are together the body of Christ. We participate here in his body 
in his death by faith, Sunday after Sunday. It is a spiritual meal for us to grow. Now, not us as individuals, but us together, to grow together further and further into the body of Christ so that we can be the what to the world? The hands and the feet, right? Yeah. At this table, we see that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. For the same spirit that dwells within us also serves us at this table, that we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. At this table, I love this one, we see that the church is the family of God. And you guys that grew up being invited to eat dinner at other people's houses as if you were one of their kids, that's what's going on here. This is where we are invited. We are that poor, dirty, nasty kid from down the road, that kid of slavery that the firstborn comes and asks us over to eat. He does it at this table. To dine at his father's table as a free child of grace, as a free child of God. And it's here at this table that we realize, we realize again and again that the son's inheritance is even our inheritance. And that we get to be in the family that we've always wanted to be in, whether we knew it or not. At this table, we're reminded that the church is the mother of believers. Yes, all those years that you grew up in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and later on disciple nows maybe. All those volunteers that knew you from when you were very, very little all the way up, and perhaps even you now volunteering. It's in all those things, but especially at this table that we see, the, the church is very much like a mom, raising us just so. We're baptized in the church. We're raised on the milk of the gospel. It's the church that does it. We're raised to eat from milk to solid food at this table. To participate in the story that's told here, the drama that unfolds, which is none other than the person and work of Christ Jesus our Lord at this table every Sunday. The gospel presented in HD before our very eyes. And it's at this table that we're raised by the church to join our father in the family biz. It's at this table that we see that the church is the army of the Lord. For it's at this table that he musters us and he feeds us as troops for war. It's at this table that we are strengthened to resist the schemes of the devil. And from this table, we're sent out, are we not? To the very edge of the kingdom to hold and advance the line in his name. It's at this table that we see and are reminded that we are a holy priesthood. It is the table, the high priest that we visit, we come back to, to remember that we have been sprinkled by his sacrifice for service. We're privileged in that service. And it's in that service that we go throughout our week laying our sacrifice next to his. 
And it's at this table, last and perhaps most important of all, especially on those hard days and weeks, it's at this table that we're reminded that we are the bride of Christ. That the story is not over yet, but someday it will be. And it will not be a tragedy. It'll be a comedy in the old sense of the word. And all the old comedies, they ended, they ended with weddings, with parties, feasts of joy. At this table, we remember that we're not left here alone, not forever. He serves us every Sunday, and there will be a day to come that he will come back and claim the one that is his. And together, we will celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb with all the saints that came before us, with all the hosts of heaven. Truthfully, the Lord's table is a stirring picture, is it not? We see it Sunday after Sunday. We think of one, maybe two, maybe three things. It's so much that we can't even hold it in our heads. That's the bounty, the hospitality that he shows us. And there are things I left out as well. Many, many, many redemptive ways that he sees us. Many redemptive ways that he treats us. We see it here. He shows it to us here. There's a reason he chose a table. Here we see the many redemptive ways that we should see and treat one another. And that's what I want to think about today. The focus of today's sermon is going to be this. How God sees us and treats us at this table. And how we see and treat one another. And especially how we should see and treat one another here. It's a very important distinction. We're going to begin by considering how the Corinthians treated one another, which in general was not good. The Corinthians tended to do one thing and do it well. They did many things, but there was one thing that they did really well. It was not good. They made themselves better than one another. They they knew how to do it in so many ways. And if you go through the entire book of 1 Corinthians and even really vast portions of 2 Corinthians, you can see You can get a glimpse into the ways that they were doing this to one another. In chapter 3 especially, we see the smart people putting themselves over the simple people, making themselves better. Better by boasting in their religious knowledge of all things, which should go to show you we can do and use anything to make ourselves better than one another, even Christ This is what they do in chapter 3. In chapter 9, they do it again. Most notably, the righteous, those that don't struggle with certain sins. They boast in their freedom in front of those that do struggle. They boast in their freedom in front of the weaker brother. And then again at table, at the very table of the Lord, they do it again. They make themselves better. The rich make themselves better than the poor. This is what they were doing. Paul tells us the rich, they ate all the food, and they left none for the poor. 
They celebrated a meal, you see. Not a tiny spiritual meal like we do here. Back then, they celebrated a love feast, a bigger meal that included the bread and wine that we take here. It was almost like a Passover that was offered more frequently, if you want to think about it that way. Probably like a potluck, which I can't help but quote Curtis because it's the greatest quote that I've come across in a long time. Curtis, one time, he told me, Ryan, I've never been to a bad potluck. And I thought, such wisdom in that. Such wisdom. Perhaps it was like a potluck where everybody brought food. Everybody except the poor. And why? Because the poor didn't have anything to bring, right? Paul says, by leaving nothing for the poor, the rich utterly, completely and totally humiliated them. Now, I want you to imagine this and dig in to really comprehend what it means to make yourself better, especially at the table, because it's a brutal thing. There are many Sundays, not, not many, I keep saying many, there are some Sundays that I have served bread or wine and not had enough wine or not had enough grape juice to give, because even though our communion team is the best in the biz, and they are, and they stress about this stuff, uh, they do a great job, but there are some days that the Lord brings them from the highways and the hedges, okay, and it's inevitable, every now and again it will happen, that we run out of grape juice or we run out of wine, and you're left handing somebody what they don't want, right? If you've been on the giving end or the receiving end of that, you know how awkward that can be, okay? Even though it's innocent, because no one is purposely depriving you. Now, I want you to imagine with me that we told all the people that made the most money in the church to go to the first service and have their fill. And then I want you to imagine what it would be like, what it would feel like to show up to the second service and come to us to receive bread and wine and be told with a straight face, it's all gone. Sorry. Maybe try to make more money next month. It's brutal. Back then, feasts were always headed or um, led or um, owned by the rich. This is what was done in most feasts back then. The rich, in other words, were the guests of honor, okay? The rich ones would be the ones that would sit at the table, at the head of the table, and they would preside over the feast. It was very common in the day. In Corinth, the rich came into the church, and they continued that tradition, right? They made themselves better, just like they did before, made themselves better than the poor. The Corinthians, by doing that, completely missed the point. Because what does the table show us? It shows us a lot, but one of the things it shows us is an example of how to throw a feast. Because who's the host here? 
Who's the ultimate guest here? And who's the meal here? Right? The richest guy in the cosmos came to town to throw a feast. He came to become poor so that all who showed up to the feast would become rich indeed. And as if that wasn't enough, he even served at his own feast. And Paul doesn't mention it here in Corinthians, but the Gospels tell us that this rich guy became poor and he wrapped a towel around his waist to wash their feet. This is how we throw a feast. They completely missed the example, glaring, staring them straight in the face. And by doing so, honestly, they crashed his meal. This is what they did. They proclaimed a gospel, but this is the gospel they proclaimed. They made Christ a God of the rich. They said, in Christ, the rich get richer. The gospel that they proclaimed was that Christ was an enemy of the poor. If you're in Christ, the poor get poor. When in fact, what were they supposed to proclaim? They were supposed to proclaim his death until he comes again. And so Paul, in verse 20, he says this to them. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's feast that you eat. You eat a feast, yes, but it is not the Lord's. It's yours. They made it their meal. And he's so astute. That's exactly what they did. They made it their meal, not the Lord's, and certainly not the meal of the poor. They made themselves the guests of honor. They put themselves at the head of the table just by making themselves better than one another. This is what they did. Now, cringeworthy to be sure. Awkward to even talk about, much less explain out loud. But I will tell you this. We secretly make ourselves better than one another all the time. We secretly make ourselves better than one another. We make ourselves better than those who are different from us. And it could be in any variety of ways. That could go on for forever and ever and ever. Think about it. The way that people look differently than us, the clothes they wear, the skin they have, the way they talk, those who act differently than us in public, that are more at ease, or perhaps some are more shy. For some, it's harder to be around others. We make ourselves better than those who value certain things more or less than us. This is where the politic thing comes into play. But also all kinds of other frivolous things, like they like this kind of art. They like this director. They like this music. They drive this kind of car. You name it. Just like the Corinthians, we can always find a way. We secretly make ourselves better than those who know less than us. So if we have had the opportunity in life to study something and become somewhat of an expert on a topic, we will find a way to make others feel bad about how little they know about it. And again, it could be, just like the Corinthians, it could be 
that we use Christ to do that. Or the liturgy. Or our systematics as Reformed people. We make ourselves better than those who fail time and again, especially at things that we managed to do decently enough to get by. We make ourselves better than those that have less than us. Or perhaps we have less and we find a way to put our blue collar hero, uh, our blue hero collar on and make ourselves seem better than those who have way so much. Right? I've heard this done before. Okay? I'm better than the rich because XYZ, work for a living, whatever. We can find a way. We secretly make ourselves better than those who have poor health. Those who maybe can't take care of themselves or can't afford to take care of themselves or don't know how to do it perhaps as well. I've heard that done. We certainly make ourselves better than those that can't find happiness in this world. Even though perhaps and in all likelihood they can't help it. Because their lives, their lives are worth mourning over. Always making ourselves better. Always making ourselves guests of honor. At meals for one. Certainly not this meal. I personally thought I would make a great guest of honor in India. I thought I would grace India with my presence. Zach came over a long time ago and an end in order to tell us all about India and in order to invite us to go to India. This has been over 10 years, long time. He was at our house for something like three hours in our living room convincing us how awesome India was and that we should go, how important it is. And I nodded, and I said, yes, that's great, it's awesome. And then finally, when he couldn't say anymore, because he will not take no for an answer when it comes to India, uh, he got in his car, he went home, I closed the door, and I looked at my wife, Amber, and I said, he's crazy, I ain't going to India. And she's like, you just said you would go. And I said, well, there's, there's always a reason. Always a reason not to go. I couldn't confess then what I will confess to you now, which is what was in here. I actually thought that they were too poor, that they were too primitive. And I would have even had this in my heart. I thought they were too dirty, too sick. To go to. I thought that they were altogether unworthy of my time and talents, whatever those were. I don't even know if I had talents. I thought that they were somebody else's problem, and in some way, somehow, they needed to stay somebody else's problem. You see, in that way, I made myself a guest of honor before I even got there. But God had other plans, and he broke my heart seven ways till Sunday. But this is one of them that stuck with me as I was preparing to preach to you this morning. We attended a church dedication while we were there. We were fortunate enough to do this, and it's an extraordinary blessing if you ever get to see it. And when they dedicate churches over there, 
They have the people that help build it come over, and there's a gigantic ceremony, a high and holy prayer, and you are generally humbled to be there. Um, and then they serve a meal after that to celebrate in the name of the Lord. And the way they do, did it while I was there, I don't know if they still do it this way, but the way they did it while we were there was that they had the Americans eat inside the church. They brought tables in the church and they let us sit in the church to eat the first meal that was in the church, which was partly um, a show of honor, but really and truly, it was gracious hosting on their part because what they did is made sure all the food that was served in the church was prepared with bottled water. They were so thoughtful as to try and not get us sick. Um, Isaiah and Anant are tremendous hosts, to be sure. But if I'm eating inside the church, and it is a great meal, it's a wonderful meal, if I'm eating inside the church and the church is made such that I can hear all the laughter, all the joy, all the sounds of the rest of the people eating outside the church, then of course, I'm burning with curiosity. I must go see what it looks like outside. So it's really hard, by the way, to get up from the table when Isaiah and Anant are hosting because they're watching you like hawks and they're trying to make sure you have everything you need. Somebody had asked a question at the far end of the table and they went over there to talk. So I got up and like, quickly, quietly snuck out to see what it looked like outside because it, it sounded like they were having a lot of fun. And when I went outside, what I saw was priceless. I'll never forget. They had set up, knowingly or unknowingly, I don't know, they had set up this medieval feasting table where they had, they had tables, like the head of the table it was two, three tables wide, and then they had five, six tables running that way which the reason that the kings always did this for feasting was it was as if the king sits in the middle and the tables that extend are like his arms, like he's welcoming his people in to the feast, right? So knowingly or unknowingly, they set these tables up like this and they had these awnings that were set up above the tables and spilling off the tables were the most beautiful flowers, strings of flowers you'd ever seen. And the tables were full of the best-looking food I had ever beheld. And flowers hanging from the awnings as well. And then my eye, because of the nature of the tables, my eye is drawn to the head of the table. And who do I see but the oldest and poorest-looking of them all sitting there, eating probably the best meal that she would have the entire year. And I was struck by it because that's exactly how Christ would have done it. I was struck by their joy, which was everlasting, eternal, without end. And I can't for the life of me, even now, read uh, Revelation 19 and the marriage feast of the Lamb without seeing that picture. Every time I look, I see it. And so there I am, I'm not supposed to be there, I'm supposed to be inside the church. And I just, with everything that I am, want to join them and be a part of the meal. Not at the head of the table, not as the guest of honor, but as the guy that squeezes in at the very end, the guy that knows that he's just lucky enough to be there. About that time, Isaiah... And a month, it was a month. A month came out, and I felt his 
gentle hand on my shoulder, and he showed me back to my seat because I wasn't supposed to be out there. But I saw what I needed to see. I saw what God needed me to see. I needed to see the body anew, and he showed it to me in a way I'll never forget. And that's what Paul wants for us. That's what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. Paul says, you're in trouble. You did a bad thing. You need to discern the body. You need to discern the body anew. That's what you need to do. You need to see and treat the body anew in Christ Jesus, its head. But how do we see people anew? How do I see you anew when I've known so many of you for so long? How do I see myself anew? Well, I do it and you do it the same way the Corinthians needed to do it. By recalling where the feast came from. And here's where it came from, so listen up. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, he says, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Paul recounts the Last Supper. It's a story they all know. It's a story you guys know too. But Paul and I recount it to remind you and the Corinthians and myself that we're all guests at this meal. And that this meal is Christ's meal. It's not ours. That it's his body. And he's the one serving it. Remember, he's the host. He's the guest. He's the meal. And realize that we're doing this. We're still doing this as a church. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands of years. We're still doing it. Still proclaiming his death. Ever and always proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. That's what we do here. And what happens when we eat this meal? What happens when they ate this meal? What happens when we eat and drink Christ's bread and wine? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 10, he says this. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we together partake of the one bread. Mark and I were talking about how some of the translations have shifted and changed that word. You hear us up here say, the bread that we break is a participation in his body. The cup that we bless is a participation in his blood. Um, Throughout the history of the church, um, recently, I guess, in English, some of the translations will translate it something like commune, that we commune here, which in and of itself is, is not wrong, but commune, the root that shares a root with community, we get this false idea that 
partaking of this bread and wine is done by those that belong in this group of people. And so it's just something we do because we're a part of the group. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. What Paul is saying is that it is a koinonia. It is a community, but it's something that we participate in. When we come up here, we join in. We join in and we join in fellowship with the body of Christ, with Christ and one another. That's what happens here. It's not just you alone being a part of a group. It's us together being part of him with the saints above. So by eating and drinking, we participate in Christ's body. They became Christ's body in this world, and so do we when we dine at this table. Now, that makes for a very bold statement. It lends a lot of gravity to the way that we see and treat his church, his body. You see, it's quite one thing for us to make ourselves better than another believer. It's quite another thing for us to make ourselves better than Christ's body. The table confronts us. It leaves us with a big question. How then shall we treat Christ's body? Shall we treat Christ's body the way the Pharisees did? Shall we make ourselves better? Shall we bear false witness against one another? Shall we mock one another? Shall we strike his body down? Shall we strip it? Strip it bare with shame. Shall we crucify his body, the church, in our hearts? Or shall we treat Christ's body the way the sinful woman did when she washed his feet with her hair and tears and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil? Shall we treat the body of Christ the way Joseph and Nicodemus did when they gathered their courage and fear their lives and asked for Christ's body and brought myrrh and aloe to it and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a new tomb, gently preparing his body for burial and for the resurrection to come? What did they do exactly? They treated his body so gently, so gently, with such affection. This is what they did. They cared for his body the same way that we carefully and tenderly bring bread and wine from the table back to our seats. That's how they treated his body. That's how we should treat his body as well. That's how we treat the church. Body of Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, then let us fulfill all joy by being of the same mind. Do not make yourselves better than one another, but in humility count one, count one another as more significant than yourselves. 
Have this in mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who took the form of a bondservant, that he might feed us together at this table, that together we might be his body for the life of the world. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, you alone are better than, for there is no God like you. Forgive us when we make ourselves better than one another. Forgive us, O Lord, when we make ourselves better. Better even than those that Christ died for. Better even than those in whom his Holy Spirit dwells. Forgive us, we pray, teaching us by your word and sacrament to discern your body anew. To see your church anew at your table. Grace us with your presence and show us our rightful place among your saints. Teach us to treat your church as we would your body. For we are your body in this world. Amen.